This is such a, such a great passage, Lord. Your word is great. You're great, Lord. And we pray that as we gather this morning to worship you and to fellowship with the saints, as we enter in into prayer, Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would just minister to our spirits, Lord. You would just draw us into your presence, Lord. Pray that we could receive from you this morning. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. John chapter 14 is, I think, one of the one of the richest chapters in the New Testament. Last time we opened John, we saw Jesus dealing with stress and anxiousness. And we discussed our propensity towards worry and unbelief. As we read through the chapter, there are so many great topics. We see obedience to the Lord. We see these pictures of the Trinity. We see this this picture of the, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We, we, we see the exclusivity of the gospel. We, we see the scope of the ministry that Jesus has called us to. We see Jesus as being the reflection, the, the manifestation of the Father. We, we see this picture of eternity in heaven. There's so much in this chapter. And, and remember, as we're looking at chapter 14, this is the last night before the crucifixion. Remember, the Last Supper just took place. And John doesn't mention it in his gospel. But remember, the other gospels inform us that Judas has just left to betray Jesus at this point. In a couple hours, the guys will be heading to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will be arrested. Where he'll be led away to trial. Here in John chapter 14, we're witnessing the, the beginning of the end of Jesus' natural earthly life. And so Jesus here, he's giving the guys a few last-minute lessons, a few last bits of advice. And last week, we looked at verses 1 through, or not last week, last time, we looked at verses 1 through 6. And we're going to pick back up in verse 6 this morning. And we're going to start by looking at verse 6 from a little different angle, and then we're going to proceed forward to verse 15. In verse 6, it says this. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So verse 6 is one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, right? We hear it quoted all the time. Every time we share our faith, we, we, we will share this verse. You know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And, and this verse, it speaks of the exclusivity of our faith. The Bible clearly teaches that our faith is the only legitimate faith. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Jesus is the only way to get to the Father. And people all the time will say, well, Christians are so closed-minded. Christians are so exclusive. Well, it's not me. 
It's not us, right? We, we didn't say it. It's God. He's the one who said it over and over. We just happen to choose to believe and accept what the Lord said. But I want to spend a couple minutes thinking about the logic of this verse and a couple of different arguments for Jesus being the only way to the Father. The first, it's clear, right, that he's claiming to be the only way. There's not really a lot of wiggle room. There's not a lot of room for interpretation. Some people will say, you know, I don't believe that Jesus said that. And, you know, people say that, and you have to say, really, what's, what's the basis for your belief? How, how do you come to that conclusion that Jesus never said that? And when people reply, it's always subjective, isn't it? Well, I think that. Well, I believe that. Well, I don't think. And really, that argument is nonsense. Scripture, the Bible, is the inspired word of God. And we can't just pick and choose. Oh, I believe this part, but I don't believe that part. Jesus said this, but he didn't actually say this. It's sort of a, sort of a package deal. Right? It's not like Burger King. You don't get it your way. It's, this is what we have. And I wonder, how do people who think like that choose what Jesus really said and did? It, it, it seems like they choose whatever is convenient for them. Whatever they feel like believing. Whatever is easy. And, and this is kind of what I think. I think that when people pick and choose certain portions of the scripture, what they're really trying to do is to create God in their own image. Right? They're trying to create a God who agrees with them. They're trying to create a God that believes what they believe. And it's totally subjective. I like this part, but I don't like this part. That verse offends me. And, and, and that's the new unpardonable sin, isn't it? To offend somebody. Lord forbid somebody be offended by something we say. Paul tells his young protege Timothy, and we all know this, verse, 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, all scripture, and I like how the ESV translates it, because most of us have learned this verse in, in New King James or New American Standard or something. But in the ESV it says this, all scripture is breathed out by God. And I like how the translators put that. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, complete, equipped for every good work. So scripture says that the word of God is inspired, that it's God-breathed. Scripture says that the Holy Spirit spoke the message into the hearts of his people, and they wrote it down, right? And their personality comes out. Their personality is reflected, but the content is God-breathed. It's inspired by him. And people say, well, maybe. Maybe the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible, but, but in its original form. But, you know, the Bible, it's been rewritten so many times. It's been translated, and it's been retranslated. And how do we know that the Bible that we have today is the same that the apostles and the disciples wrote 2,000 years ago? How do we know that Scripture hasn't been corrupted over time? How do we know that errors haven't crept in? And this morning, we're not going to go into a whole 
bibliology lecture, except to say this, that there's a mountain of evidence that the Bible that we have today is the same as it was when it was written. Now, to be clear, we don't have the original copies penned by Peter and Paul and John and James. But we have copies that are very close to the originals. And not just one or two fragments. We have complete copies of the Bible from the third century. And much of the Bible from much earlier than that. And we have most of the Bible quoted by the early church fathers even earlier than that. Much of the New Testament can be recreated just from the quotes of the early church fathers. Men like Polycarp and Clement and Ignatius and Origen. They quoted the Bible extensively in their writings. And, and we can see that what they quoted then and what we have today is the same. We have copies of the Old Testament that are 2,600 years old, around 600 B.C., and they're exactly the same as the Hebrew text that we have today. We have thousands and thousands and thousands of copies and parts of copies, and they're all 99% the same as today. The only differences are minor grammatical differences, spelling differences, vocabulary issues, things like that. And, and the overwhelming evidence is in that the Bible that we have today is trustworthy. It's faithful to the original manuscripts. So you say, okay, well maybe we have the same Bible that the early church had. Maybe Jesus did say that. But what did he really mean? People say, you know, I believe that Jesus was a good man. He was a moral teacher. He was a prophet of God. But God the Son, the only way to the Father, I'm just not sure about that. The great Christian writer and thinker C.S. Lewis lays out a great argument in this matter. And I'm sure that most of you guys have heard it. But he says basically this. There are only three options concerning Jesus. He's either a liar, lunatic, or Lord. Because Jesus clearly says that he is God in the flesh. He clearly says that he's the only way to heaven. So either he's a liar, either he knew that he wasn't God, and he's purposely misleading people, condemning them to hell, in which case he's not a good man, he's not a good moral teacher, he's not a prophet of God, or maybe he's crazy. Maybe he was a lunatic. Maybe he really believed that he was God. But he needed Prozac, not our worship. Right? Maybe he needed medical help, not our adoration. If Jesus was a, was a madman, if he was insane, if he was crazy as a loon, he's not worth listening to. He's not a prophet of God. He's not a great moral teacher. Or the third option is that Jesus really was who he said he was. That he's God in the flesh. The only way to reach the Father. C.S. Lewis says that Jesus can't just be a good man. He can't just be a prophet or a teacher. Uh, it's not an option. We have to pick one of those three. That he was a liar, that he was a lunatic, or that he's Lord. And another argument 
for the exclusivity of Jesus. Kind of along the same logic that C.S. Lewis laid out here. Assume that Jesus is a way to God. Was he really a prophet? Was he really an honest man? If so, then what he says about himself must be true, right? If he's really a prophet and he's really a good man, he must have told the truth about who he was. Therefore, he must be the only way to God, as he claimed. And further, if Jesus isn't the only way to the Father, then he isn't any way to the Father. If he's not the only way, then he's not a way at all. If there are indeed many roads to heaven, Jesus isn't one of them. He can't be one of them because he claims to be the only way. And if he's not really the only way, again, he's not a prophet. He's not an honest man. He's a liar or a devil. There's no middle ground. And think about this. Right? Jesus there in the garden the night before the crucifixion. Remember, he's praying, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. Jesus is crying out to the Father. He says, if there's any other way to, to save humanity, don't make me go to the cross. Don't send me to the cross. But there was no other way for men to be saved other than Jesus on the cross. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way to get to the Father. And this idea that all roads lead to the same place, it's idiocy, isn't it, really? Only in religion would somebody assert this. How do you get to Vancouver, B.C.? Oh, you just take any road. You'll, you'll get there. You don't need any specific directions. No. 520 won't get you there. I-90 won't get you there. I-5 South won't get you there. If you want to get to Vancouver, B.C., you have to go north, right? There's only one direction that's going to get you there. Oh, don't be so closed-minded. Don't be so judgmental. Just go for a drive. No. There's only one direction that leads you to the desired destination. And the same is true spiritually. Whether you like it or not, only one road leads to the Father, and it's Jesus Christ. And I want to note this. Our faith is very exclusive, and that there's only one way to get to the Father. But at the same time, it's also very inclusive. It's inclusive that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In fact, that was one of the great criticisms of the early church. That was one of the great criticisms of early Christianity. The Romans said, oh, those, those Christians will take anybody. A Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave or free, rich or poor, they don't care. They'll accept everybody. And that's true, isn't it? Through Jesus, through the cross, we all have equal access to the Father. And you know what the amazing thing is? It's not that Jesus is the only way to the Father. The amazing thing is that there's any way to the Father. 
We are so depraved, so broken, so naturally bent towards evil. It's amazing that the Lord wants anything to do with us. It's amazing that he created any way for us to reach him. It's amazing that so many people reject that way and complain about the exclusivity of it. Jesus goes on in verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So keep in mind who Jesus is talking to here. He's talking to the disciples. He's talking to the 12 at the Last Supper. And if anyone on earth knew who Jesus was, it was these guys, right? Peter, John, James. They'd spent the last three and a half years wandering around together, walking, talking, camping, being taught by Jesus. They had these quiet moments with Jesus. They knew Jesus as well as anyone could. <clears throat> and Jesus here, he says, you know, you know me, but you don't really know me. Because if you really knew me, you would know the Father also. And he goes on, and he kind of says, pay attention. You do know the Father, and you've seen him because you've seen me. In verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Some of your translations say, show us the Father, and it is sufficient. Jesus just says in verse 7, you have seen the Father. Now Philip says, show us the Father. Let us see God, and we'll be satisfied. That's all we need. The disciples are kind of funny, aren't they? Right? Jesus just tells them something. It's like, they, it's like they just don't listen. It goes in one ear and out the other ear, and it doesn't stop in between. It's like I said, look it. After church, we're going to go to Romeo's and get pizza. Okay, cool. But where are we going for lunch? Well, I just told you. Right? That's the argument kind of that's going on there. And Jesus said to him, verse 9, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus says, Philip, look, I've been with you for over three years. And you still don't get it. And he says, I've, I've told you over and over again, and you still don't realize who I am. And how many times, just in the Gospels, just, just what's recorded, how many times did Jesus reveal his true nature to the disciples? He says, the Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. Over and over, Jesus reveals himself. The author of Hebrews says this, in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe 
by the word of his power. It says that Jesus radiates God's glory and he is the exact imprint of the character and nature of God. 1 Timothy 3.16 Remember Paul says that God was manifested in the flesh. He was revealed in human form. Jesus here, he says, if you want to see the Father, just look at me. He says, I am the same in essence, the same in character, the same in power as the Father. He's essentially saying, look at me, I am God. Paul says it best in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. And I like how the NLT translates it. It says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus says in verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus says, every word I say, everything I do, he said, it isn't me. It's the Father who indwells me. It's the Father who, who lives inside me. Jesus says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Every word that I'm speaking, it isn't me. It's the Father who is speaking through me. Jesus says, the ministry that I do, it's not me, it's the Father working through me. And there's an interesting idea here, and we talked about this a while back. Theologians call it the kenosis. Remember that word kenosis is Koine Greek, it means to empty, or the emptying. And it, we see that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. It says, having this mind among yourselves, or have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what Paul is saying there is that Jesus emptied himself of his divine powers and his divine privilege. He gave up those privileges and he took the position of a slave. And I've used this example before, but it illustrates it well. Remember in Western movies, there's the bad guy and he's confronting the lawman, right? And the bad guy will say something like, you know, if you didn't have that badge, I'd... And the sheriff will take off the badge and lay it aside. And he says, all right, now we're just two guys. And they go on to fight or whatever, and the lawman beats him up. But, but, but that's a good picture, that the lawman, he takes off that badge. What he's doing is he's laying aside his position, right? He's laying aside his authority. When Jesus came to earth, he was still fully God, but he, he laid aside his authority. He laid aside his position. He laid aside his divine privileges. Here's what that means to us. Here's why that's important. Here's why I'm belaboring that point. Everything that Jesus did during his earthly ministry, he did as a man. 
He did as a human being. He did as one who was walking in submission to the Holy Spirit, in obedience to the Father. Everything that Jesus did, all of the miracles that he performed, all of the teachings that he gave, his, his, his life, he did it all through prayer, through studying the word, through fasting, through walking in humble obedience to the leading of the Father. Here's the significance of that. Everything that Jesus did, he did as a man, as a human being, through the power of God. We're men. We have the same access to the Holy Spirit, don't we? Everything that Jesus did, the miracles, the healings, the powerful teachings, he did as a man serving God. That same power, that same thing, it's available to each one of us. You might be thinking, wow, pastor, you're getting kind of close to heresy. We can do everything that Jesus did. Oh, it gets worse. I'm not saying that you can do everything Jesus did. I'm going to say that, that you can do even more than Jesus did. And before you get mad and leave the church, look at the next couple of verses with me. Jesus says in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus says this. He says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same things that I have done, and even greater work. Those are the words of Jesus right here. We'll do greater things. Does that mean Jesus said the 5,000, so we're going to feed 7,000? Right? He rose the dead, so we're going to... I don't know what's beyond that. But he, he's not talking about we're going to do more significant things than Jesus. He's not saying that we're going to do more sensational works than Jesus. He's talking about the works that the church is going to do, the works that the disciples are going to do are going to be greater in size, greater in scope, greater in, in magnitude. And think about it for a second. Paul, Peter's first sermon after Pentecost. Remember, he stands up and preaches, and how many people got saved? 3,000. Good somebody reads their Bible. Thank you, Belinda. <laughs> That's more than Jesus' entire ministry. Jesus labored for three and a half years, and in the end, he had a handful of scared followers hiding on a rooftop. Today, there are over one billion people who claim the name of Jesus. The disciples' visible ministry has certainly reached beyond what Jesus did, hasn't it? And I think that's what he's talking about here. But this idea of the kenosis, it's important for us to understand. We have the same power. We have the same Holy Spirit available to us that Jesus did. And God will use us in amazing ways when we walk in humble submission to him. And he goes on in verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Woo, that's what I'm talking about. 
ask anything in my name. That's good because I got a list. I, I want one of those F-350 crew cabs because I need something to tow my new fishing boat. Right? I, I want a house in Maui. I really like I was at Costco and I saw those 90-inch 4K ultra high def TVs. I want a couple of those, Jesus. My wife really liked those Mercedes G-Wagons. Right? Jesus is like a genie in a lamp. Just gotta start rubbing. Right? That's why I started coming to church. That's why I got into ministry to get all that stuff. I see the pastors on TV and they've got Rolexes and Rolls Royces. That's the life for me. Right? That's what the Lord's calling me to. Sadly, that's the reality for a lot of people. They're told that if they just give their life to Christ, if they ask anything in faith, they'll get it. I've accepted Christ, so, so I want my stuff. I want my cut, Jesus. And when it doesn't happen, and it won't happen, people get disillusioned, and they leave the faith. And the reality is, that's not what Jesus was saying at all. Look what James, Jesus' own brother, wrote. James chapter 4, verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Then he says this. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And what James is saying is this. You don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you're asking for the wrong things with the wrong motives. You're asking for selfish reasons. I want a boat. I want a new house. I want a, one of every body style of a Toyota Land Cruiser, right? We're only asking for things that will give us pleasure, things that we think will bring us satisfaction. And Jesus is talking about something completely different here. He's talking about asking things according to God's will, asking for things that fit into God's plan for the salvation of humanity. In the context here, Jesus is talking about ministry. He's talking about being used by God. You understand the difference there? If you ask, Lord, give me strength and courage to share your word. Lord, give me the ability to stand up for you in a, in a hostile environment. Lord, would you please give me a little extra finance because the kids live across the street need new shoes. Lord, give me understanding of your word so that I can effectively communicate with my classmates, with my coworkers. The Lord is happy to answer those prayers because they line up with his will. They line up with his desire for our lives. He goes on in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This one verse is amazingly complicated and amazingly simple at the same time. As Christians, we all say, you know, I love Jesus. I love the Father. And Jesus says, really? He says, the mark of your love for me is simple. Just say that you love me. 
just sing some worship songs. If you love me, just wear your WWJD bracelets. If you really love me, just listen to 105.3 and you'll be good. That's not what he says, is it? He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus says, do you do what I tell you to do? Do you keep those simple commandments that I've given you? Do you love one another as I have loved you? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Have you taken up your cross and followed me? Do you give to the poor? Do you forgive those who offend you? Do you love your enemies? Do you not judge other people? Do you make disciples and teach others about me? Those are the commands that the Lord has given us. And just to be clear, those aren't requirements for salvation. Jesus isn't saying, if you do this, 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 and this, you'll be saved. If you have X number of converts, and you share your faith with this many people, and, and the ratio of evangelism versus salvation is such, and you do this, this, and this, then you'll be saved. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that keeping his commandments is evidence of our salvation. Keeping his commandments is evidence of our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's evidence that we're his disciples and his followers. If we really love Jesus, we'll do what he says. And the opposite is true as well. If we don't keep his commandments then the evidence is that we don't really love him. You know, I can tell my wife, I love you, I love you, I love you. But if I don't take care of her, if I don't provide for her, if I go out Friday night and get drunk and beat her and curse her and I'm seeing other women and I'm never home and I'm always at the bar, I can say I love you, honey. But my actions show something different, don't they? There's no evidence of that love. She won't believe that I love her because my actions show that I hate her or, or at best that I'm indifferent towards her. And it's the same idea here. We say, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. But is there any evidence of that love in your life? Is there any submission to his will? Is there any adherence to his commands? It's one thing to say, I'm a Christian and I love Jesus. It's another thing to walk with him and to keep his commands and to obey him. We're going to close there. I had kind of hoped to get into the whole ministry of the Holy Spirit, but we're going to save that for next week. But three things to take away from this passage. First, Jesus isn't a way to the Father. He is the way to the Father. He is the only path. He's the only route to heaven. Second, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Everything that God is, Jesus is. Everything that Jesus is, the Father is. And last, as we were just talking about, if we really love Jesus... There will be evidence in our lives. We'll, we'll be obedient to his commands. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your good word. Lord, we thank you for just the instruction that you give us, Lord. And as we talked about before, you never show us what we need to do without showing us how to do it, Lord. And we're thankful for the coming verses about the Holy Spirit and how you empower us and give us the ability to walk in obedience to you, Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray that you would just help us today. Help us to manifest the evidence of our relationship with you in our day-to-day lives. Help us to walk in love and obedience to you, Father. We ask that in your name, Jesus.